Thank you, choir, for that beautiful testimony and song. And as we uh, begin our time of study in God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this moment asking your blessing on our time together as we open your Word and understand the purpose for uh, really all of the Old Testament and the witness of Israel. Lord, I pray that we would uh, see the pattern that is set before us in that uh, work that you did through the nation of Israel and through that we might uh, follow the leadership of that testimony that we might follow the leadership of that pattern in our own lives pray that you would bless us now as we study in Christ name I pray amen <clears throat> well this morning we're going to be in first Corinthians chapter 10 we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 as we're working through the subject of uh, discipleship. So over the last, well, since the beginning of the year, I've been preaching through a series on what it is to be a disciple and, and what it means to follow Christ as a disciple. And we're focusing uh, over the last, uh, since we began, on defining discipleship, defining what a disciple is, defining how we're discipled, all of that stuff. So we started by looking at the first Greek word for disciple, which is uh, Mathetes, and that that word took us through a lot of the New Testament, especially through Matthew and the book of John, as we saw that a disciple is chosen and loved by God, a disciple uh, abides in God, uh, ab- abides in Christ, a disciple is to follow and to be nourished by or commune with Christ, a disciple is to uh, serve others and to make disciples himself. And so we've been through all of that and given that definition. And as we have looked at those, all those definitions of what it is to be a disciple, the question obviously comes up, okay, then we're supposed to be a disciple and this is what a disciple is. So how do we make disciples? How do we follow Christ? What does that look like where the rubber meets the road? If, you, if you're a method guy or a method girl, if you're a, a, the type of person that likes practical advice or, or tools for the trade or tools for the task, then the question might obviously be, well, what are the methods and tools that we use as we make disciples or as we walk as a disciple of Christ? And so, Uh, Over the next four weeks, we're going to turn to answer that question, or really actually over the next uh, couple of months, we're going to turn to answer that question of how we make disciples. And we started to answer that question last week with the Great Commission. Remember last week we looked at Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus calls his disciples to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations. And he says in verse 19 and 20, teaching them... To observe all that I've commanded you. And I pointed out last week that that statement has two actions. One is to teach, but the other is to observe. We are to teach disciples to observe or to hold fast to or to bind yourself to the commands of Jesus. So we've defined what it is to be disciples. Now we're going to look at the concept of observing or holding fast to Jesus Christ or the teachings of Christ as we walk as a disciple and as we make other disciples. So there's another Greek word, another important Greek word that helps us to understand what it is to be a disciple and how we are to be a disciple. And it is the word that Bible translators translate as example. You have it 
two times in the passage that we're about to read in verse 6 and in verse 11. And it's the Greek word typos from which we get our English word type, right? So we, we talk about someone being a type. You're, a, you're just like your father. You know, you're cut from the same cloth as your father. You're the spitting image of your father. We mean you're, you're after his type, right? So the Greek word typos means to be a form or a mold, to be made in the mold of something else, okay? Or, or if you will, it's to be a pattern. And that's really the idea that I want to focus on today is the patterns that we follow as we are becoming and seeking to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul uses this word a good bit, this word typos a good bit. He especially uses it when he wants to direct his disciples to do or to pay attention to something particularly. So over the next four weeks, we're going to look at four places where Paul instructs his disciples to follow a pattern. And tonight, uh, today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. So let's read together uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, as we see the pattern of Israel. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1, it says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So today I want you to see from this passage that a disciple is to follow the pattern of Old Testament Israel as both a witness and a warning. And that's the two points that I want you to see from this text. The witness of Old Testament Israel and the warning of Old Testament Israel. So first, let's consider the pattern that the Old Testament establishes for us as a witness of the faithfulness of God. Now, the point that Paul is making here in the broader context of 1 Corinthians, if you go back and you start in 1 Corinthians 8, and you go through 1 Corinthians 11, you'll find that there's a, a bigger subject that Paul is addressing in, he, in this passage that we just read as a piece of that. And the subject is how mature believers are to interact with those who are new in the faith. And so Paul recognized that there are those who are coming out of pagan religions who, who you know, in order to avoid falling back into their sin and back into their old ways, they would set up very strict rules. You know, we're not going to go certain places. We're not going to do certain things. 
to avoid even the possibility of falling back into our old way of life. And then there were mature believers. There were people who had been believers for 40, 50 years, and and they uh, knew that those things like eating meat that was sacrificed to idols was the major one that they were dealing with in Corinth, that that's just meat. It doesn't matter if it's been sacrificed to an idol or not. It's just meat. But Paul says, you know, these mature believers, they were using their freedom in Christ and they were, in effect, abusing it. And by abusing that freedom, they were causing their weaker brother, their younger brother in the faith, to sin. They were causing him to fall back into his old ways. And so Paul says that mature believers are not to make an idol out of their freedom in Christ. Is it true that you are free in Christ under the grace of God you are free from the law. You are free to be led by the Spirit and to, and to know the will of God. Yes, but we have to be a, a careful that we do not allow that freedom to affect our own relationship to God by making what, our, what we're obsessing with, our freedom, an idol. And we don't allow it to harm other believers. So let me give you an example of how this might apply today. So... Paul says in Romans chapter 14 that there is no day that is more sacred than another. In other words, Sunday is a day that God has created. Monday is two. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. All of those days are God's days. And we're to live every day as unto the Lord. So there is no day that is more sacred than the other. And so we recognize that if we miss a Sunday, I'm not saying you should do that. Just as your pastor, I have to say that. But, uh, I'm not, but uh, if we miss a Sunday, if we miss worship on, on any given Sunday, we have not sinned and we've not uh, broken faith with God. But, and that's, a, that's an important but, but there is a real danger of reveling in our freedom. Right. Of abusing our freedom and saying, well, you know, since I'm free in Christ, you Sunday's not any more important than any other day. So I'm just not going to go to church any Sunday. And we end up being a priester. Y'all know what a, Christ, a priester is? A Christian that only comes to church on Christmas and Easter. Uh, we end up just coming on the important days, just coming on Mother's Day, just coming on holidays because we have abused our freedom in Christ. And we have failed to recognize that, yes, we are free to, to uh, follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. There is no day that is more sacred than another. But we are called to build up other believers. We are called to edify one another. We are called to be nourished by the Word of God. We're called to be nourished by other believers. And if we abuse our freedom to the neglect of the people of God, then we are hurting ourselves and we are hurting other, uh, other believers. And we have made our freedom on this particular day an idol. And as Paul points out in this passage, God abhors idolatry. And to prove that God abhors idolatry, Paul points to the pattern of Old Testament Israel. So in verses 1 through 4, Paul makes these 
three connections between the work of God in Israel and the work of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's going to make that connection because we need to understand that there is a direct line between Old Testament Israel and Antioch West Baptist Church. There is a direct line between the blessings of God in Abraham and the blessings of uh, uh, for us through Jesus Christ. And so we, as New Testament believers, we're called to follow the pattern of the God's work in the Old Testament and especially to recognize the ways that God showed grace in the Old Testament and the ways he shows grace to us through Jesus Christ. So first, he says that the fathers of Israel experienced God in the cloud and in the sea. Now, when Paul points out these few point, these few connections, we have to again, like I said, we have to draw that straight line because he's pointing out these things for a very specific reason. He's referring in this cloud and in the sea, he's referring to two powerful acts of God and proofs of God's faithfulness to Israel. The first is the pillar of fire and smoke that led the people of Israel out of Egypt. And the second is the parting of the Red Sea. So both of these faithful acts connect directly to Jesus' ministry. The clouds, for one, clouds in the Old Testament were a sign of the glory of God. So do a little Bible exercise with me, a little Old Testament exercise with me, and think in your own mind of some places where clouds or smoke show up where God shows up. So I thought of a few. Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God, and it says the glory of God filled the throne room like smoke or like a cloud. And Isaiah experiences the presence of God in that cloud. In Daniel chapter 7, there's an image or a vision of a son of man who descends from the clouds with the glory of God. So it's no small thing that in all the accounts of Jesus's transfiguration, remember he goes up with Peter, James, and John on a mountain and he is uh, transfigured before their eyes. In other words, they see him as a spiritual being. They see him for his glory. And it is no small thing that in all of those accounts, like in Matthew chapter seven, 17, verse 5, when the disciples witness Jesus transfigured, a cloud descends from heaven, and out of that cloud comes a voice that says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The sea also represents God's gracious deliverance of Israel. You remember the Israelites were being chased by the Egyptians. Uh, Pharaoh had said that he would let them go and he allowed them to leave. And they left with all the riches of Egypt and they're on their way into the desert. And they turn around and look behind them and here comes the Egyptian Pharaoh and all of his chariots because he's changed his mind once again and he's coming to destroy them once and for all. And they're trapped. Their back is against the ocean and they have nowhere to go. And Mo God comes to Moses and he says, put your staff in the water and, and I will separate the sea. And so he separates the sea and Israel walks across the sea on dry ground. And as soon as the Pharaoh and all of his armies rush into that opening in the sea, 
The, God lets the water return and it collapses on them and washes them away. And it's a symbol of God's deliverance. It's not just a symbol. It's a reality of God's deliverance of, uh, of Israel from their bondage in Egypt. But it's also a symbol of our deliverance from the judgment of God and from the bondage of sin and death. And in a similar way, when we see Jesus in his ministry in uh, Galilee, he two different times in all of the gospel stories, two different times, he calms the storm and he walks across the water. Both of those situations indicate or prove that Jesus, just like God in the Old Testament separated the water and led the people of Israel through on dry ground, Jesus has that same authority and same power and he is able to deliver his disciples from the storm and bring calmness where there is only tumult. So Paul goes on to say that this cloud and this sea were like a baptism for Israel. That they followed by faith, they followed God, the pillar of cloud and smoke, they follow uh, and fire. They followed that cloud and fire through the opening in the sea. They came to the other side, the water washed away the enemies of God, and they were delivered and saved from judgment. In the same way, when we get up there, it symbolizes our following Christ through the waters of death, through the waters of judgment, into a new life that sets us free from our bondage to sin and death. So the second connection that Paul makes between Old Testament Israel and the gospel is in this spiritual food and drink that they enjoyed. Notice in verse 3, it says that they ate spiritual food and they drank spiritual drink. Now this refers again to two different instances in the Exodus story. One is, remember they got into the desert and they were hungry. And so they prayed to the Lord or Moses prayed to the Lord and God sent manna. Manna from heaven. Nobody has ever been able to identify exactly what this manna was It was a spiritual food that they went out every day at the beginning of the day and collected or every day except for the Sabbath and collected. And God provided this manna all the way up until the Israelites entered the promised land. God was faithful to give them food, to nourish them and to keep them even during their wanderings in the wilderness. And the second thing that it refers to when it says that he had spirit, they had spiritual drink, it refers to the water that flowed from the rock. There were num- numerous instances where they're out in the desert. They don't have any water. There's no water around for miles. And Moses prays or he touches a rock and water flows from the rock and provides water for the nation of Israel. So in both of these cases, we find that God provides for his people. He gives them what they need at the very moment that they need it. And Paul intends both of these references to draw our minds to our spiritual food and drink that we now enjoy in Jesus Christ. As Jesus says in John chapter 6, He is the bread of life, and anyone who eats His flesh has eternal life. In John chapter 4, He tells the woman at the well that He, has, he will give her living water, which will spring up to eternal life. So this leads me to the third 
gospel connection that Paul makes about Old Testament Israel. In verse 4, he says that the rock that Israel received water from is Jesus Christ. Now in saying this, Paul, uh, Paul isn't saying that Jesus was literally a rock. Okay, He's not saying that, the, that God the Son became a rock in the wilderness that the people of Israel received water from. But rather, what he's saying, and it's something that we cannot miss as New Testament believers, is that every Old Testament story points to Jesus. Every Old Testament story is a story of sin, judgment, grace, faith, and redemption. So every story ultimately points to Jesus Christ. The word that created the world in Genesis 1 points to Christ. The deliverance of Noah through the flood as a baptism points to Christ. The sacrifice of Isaac points to Christ. The deliverance of Israel from slavery points to Christ. All of it points to Jesus. It is all a pattern that points to God's gracefulness or graciousness and faithfulness to his people, even when they were hard-hearted and rebellious. And that brings me to my second point, which is the warning of Israel. In verse 6 through 11, Paul says that the stories of Israel give us another pattern. In verse 6, he says that these things were given to us as examples that we should not desire evil. And then again, in verse 11, it says that they were written for our instruction. Now, the word instruction there in verse 11 literally means a warning or a rebuke. Your translation may even say given to us as a warning. So the failures of Israel are recorded for us as a warning that we may not follow their examples in their faithlessness and their idolatry. And Paul gives four different examples of how they failed God and, and showed faithlessness and how we're not to follow their example in those cases. So as we look at this Old Testament pattern, we look at the pattern of Israel, there's some very serious errors that believers today make when we read the Old Testament. And there are three specific errors that I want to hopefully correct today because I know all of y'all uh, hopefully read your Bibles and you work through the Old Testament and the Old Testament can be tough sometimes and it can be tough to draw out the example that you're supposed to follow from any given text. And I want to correct three errors in the way that we can read the Old Testament and read the stories of Israel. And I want to say I'm going to focus, if, you, if I don't answer all your questions in these three errors to, today, uh, tonight I want to look at the, uh, the ways that different groups of denominations and that sort of thing read the Old Testament and, and what's wrong and right about them. So we'll look at in more depth uh, some of the ways that we should study and shouldn't study the Old Testament. But to start today, I want to, this morning, I want to correct three popular errors for how we approach the Old Testament. First, many people make an error of straining at gnats when it comes to the Old Testament. Now, you remember uh, Jesus tells the Pharisees that when they look at the law, they strain at a gnat and they swallow a camel. In other words, they take things that are small issues in the Old Testament and they make them big. And they take big issues 
and they make them small, is what he was saying. Okay, So there's a temptation, and many people make the error when they come to the Old Testament, of straining at gnats, of making big issues out of little things. And as a pastor, I have to say that this is the largest issue I deal with, with questions or, or errant beliefs among uh, church members and things like that. People will get all caught up on small little details and miss the larger picture of the story because they're worried about what one word means or what one sentence means. So let me give you a couple of examples. Some people have justified slave ba- I mean, uh, race-based slavery uh, from the story of Noah and his sons in Genesis chapter 9. They take the story of Ham laughing or, or uh, uh, exposing his father uh, and, they, and the curse that was pronounced on him because of that, and they say, well, that must mean that uh, people that come out of Ham are, are we're justified to uh, put them into slavery because of their race. And obviously there's some serious errors with that view, but to focus on that one thing and to make it the issue is to miss the broader story of the deliverance of Noah and the, and the progression of the people of God. Uh, others obsess over the meaning of David's selection of five stones. I can't tell you how many sermons I've heard over what those stones mean. Yet those details are not the point of the story. And to strain at them is to miss the bigger picture of the Old Testament. Second, some read the Old Testament as examples that give us principles for moral Living. Now, I want to be careful here because I just went through most of my sermon saying that the Old Testament is, are, is to serve as a pattern and examples for us. But we have to be careful what examples we follow in the Old Testament, right? I don't think anybody's raising their hand saying they want to be like Jezebel uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, hopefully nobody's following that example. But we have to be careful about the, the example we follow. And what I mean by that is Paul says in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham is the father of faith. And so we can read the story of Abraham as an example of faith. And it certainly is a wonderful example of faith because we see times where Abraham is faithful to God and he believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness. And then in the very next chapter, Abraham is almost completely abandoning that same faith. And so we see from the story of Abraham that faith is a a story of hills and valleys. It is a story of perseverance. But what we should never do in looking at the story of Abraham is assume that Abraham is an example of godly marriage. Because he's not. (laughs) Let me just say that. Or to assume that because Abraham was so shrewd in his dealings with God that that justifies us being a shrewd businessman. David's story also isn't there to show us that we can face the giants of our lives. And Daniel wasn't written so that we can get a biblical diet plan. As I've said earlier, all of these stories teach us about God's faithfulness, which should ultimately point us to Christ. In other words, if you're reading the Old Testament and you don't end with Jesus, you end with yourself then you probably aren't reading it right. You want to understand how this story points me to Jesus, not how it points me to more 
better practical living or being a better athlete or being a better businessman or whatever it might be. The third error that we can make is that some read the Old Testament promises and apply them to our individual lives or to our nation. And this is an error that is very common, particularly in America, where we read the Old Testament promises of God and we think that every one of them has to apply to us personally. And some of them do. Most of them apply to the nation of Israel and to the church and the people of God more broadly. A good example of this is uh, back in the 90s, there was a very popular book called The Prayer of Jabez. And the prayer of Jabez was, is a prayer in the Old Testament. And, and this guy wrote a book about how this prayer, if you pray it correctly and with the right heart, then you can have the same blessings that Jabez prayed for. Well, the prayer of Jabez is a great example of faithful prayer, but it doesn't mean that there's a one-to-one correlation between Jabez and you. Amen. It doesn't mean that if you pray that prayer, you'll all of a sudden get the blessings of Jabez. There's also, you see this also with the way that we as a nation have viewed ourselves. We think of the manifest destiny of the 1800s and how we believe that God had given us this land and so therefore we could just take it. We could just march from the East Coast to the West Coast and we were justified to do anything and everything we wanted to to conquer this land because God had given it to us. It was the new Eden. It was the new promised land. And so we were justified to do it. We took the Old Testament and we applied it to America and we wrongly did that. The U.S., uh, we, we can even today view the U.S. as God's chosen people. I hear people today even refer to the U.S. as God's chosen people or as the promised land. And all of those are errant ways of applying the Old Testament. Israel was Israel. It doesn't, the promises that are made to Israel in a lot of ways, they carry over to the church, but they do not carry over to any one nation or any one people. They are meant for all people who trust in Jesus Christ and follow him. So instead of mining the Old Testament for minute little details or trying to find principles for healthy living, We should see in these stories of the nation of Israel a pattern of God's faithfulness and a warning of how easily we can fall into temptation and the sin of idolatry and faithlessness. We should also recognize that these stories are a pattern for uh, give us patterns of faithful men and women. We should imitate Abraham in his faith. We should follow Moses in his obedience. We should desire David's heart for God. We should pray for Daniel's courage as he faced a wicked nation. So may we leave this place seeking to pattern our lives in faithfulness, in faithfulness to our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the pattern of the Old Testament and what it does for us as believers, how we can follow the examples of the Old Testament believers and the, uh, the, even those who forsook you as warnings against uh, sin and idolatry. And Lord, I pray that we would read it carefully, that we would read it with a mind towards Christ and the fulfillment being in Christ. And that we would walk in a way that glorifies you as we seek to uh, imitate the pattern of faithful believers in our lives. Pray that you would bless us now as we respond. In Christ's name I pray.